morning. Well, I've heard it all my life, but now I really believe it. Time seems to move faster the older I get. I know that sounds cliche. I know I've heard it from a lot of folks, but now I really believe it. I was just in a discussion with some friends, and I told them I can't believe it was six months ago when such and such happened. And they politely informed me that that was actually two and a half years ago when that occurred. Time seems to just be flying by, and I really just can't seem to catch up to it. What's worse is next year will be 20-year high school reunion. I can't even comprehend that. It just does not make any sense to me. I can remember high school like it was yesterday. But in reality, we shouldn't be totally comfortable with time. Because time was a part of the fall. It was part of the curse in Genesis. It reveals that we are eternal beings that now, because of the curse of sin, will all die one day. And while on this earth, we are confined to the constraints of what is known as time. So we should struggle with time. It's unnatural. We will always feel like we don't have enough of it. I mean, we should feel like we don't have enough time to visit with friends. We don't have enough time to teach and train our children. We don't have enough time to spend quality time with our spouse. We don't have enough time to read all the good theologically sound books in the world today. <clears throat> we don't have enough time to commune with our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning in our passages, as Don read, time is of the essence for Christ. Time with the disciples is winding down. He's running out of time with them. The cross is looming in the background in the near future as Jesus shares some important truths with us this morning. So today we'll be focusing on two important sections in our lengthy reading in John this morning. Because I am constrained the time we would be here for, for, the, for the, probably the next 10 hours if I went through verse by verse. So I'm just taking a few sections out of our passage. So let's open our Bibles to John 16. And we will be starting in verse 20 this morning. I've entitled this message, Sorrow Turns Into Joy. So as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. We honor you, Father. We want to give you all the glory. We thank you that we can come here to worship you, to praise you. Father, we ask that you give us wisdom, open our eyes, open our hearts to your word this morning. Help us to see, Father, how you use our struggles in life for your glory how you give us joy regardless of what's going on in our lives. We thank you for Christ. In him we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so let's open our Bibles to John 16, verse 20. And Jesus starts by saying this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, 
but the world will rejoice. So Jesus starts by saying, truly, truly, or the King James Version for some of us, verily, verily, which means literally, truth with added emphasis. So truly, truly means this is truth with utmost importance. So in my words, Jesus is telling the disciples to listen up because I'm getting ready to tell you something really important, something you really need to hear. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will leap, weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. The question is, why will the disciples weep and lament <clears throat> while the world rejoices? Well, if we go back one passage above, we will get more clarity on what Jesus was talking about in verse 19. Jesus says this, A little while you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me. So here in verse 19, Jesus is talking about his death and his resurrection. Let's hear it again in verse 19. In a little while you will not see me, which is talking about when he is crucified and killed on the cross. And then he goes on in verse 19, Right And says, again in a little while you will see me. Which is talking about when he rises from the grave. So now that we have a little more context, let's go back to verse 20 where Jesus says again, Truly, truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Saying that you the disciples will weep and lament when I'm crucified, but the world will rejoice when I'm killed. Let that sink in for a moment. The world will rejoice when Jesus is put to death. The world will celebrate when the Savior of the world is killed. The world will rejoice when God, who is the epitome of love, eternal love, is murdered. The world will rejoice when the perfect and righteous Son of God is put to death. The question is why? Why did the world rejoice at the death of Christ? Well, Jesus tells us why in John 3, 19 through 20, and they'll be on the screens behind me. And it says this, and this is the judgment, or if you're reading the NIV, this is the verdict, that light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed so Christ says the world was full of darkness and the light which is Christ exposed the world's darkness when he came to earth so in essence Christ did Christ is saying that he revealed our true nature he revealed to sinners that they are sinful we can see this with the Pharisees right the religious leaders of the day who wanted to look godly, who wanted to be highly respected by all. 
and yet Christ revealed they were total and utter frauds. Right? He saw right through them. Instead of godliness, Christ brought out the fact that they were full of pride and selfishness. And for that, church, the Pharisees wanted him killed. But let's not be mistaken. It's not just the Pharisees. It was the world as a whole wanted Christ killed. What does that tell us about the world? What does that tell us about the world we live in today? Well, it leads to point number one. The world as a whole is anti-Christian. Point number one says this. The world as a whole is anti-Christian. And what I mean by the world is not so much the physical world. We aren't talking about the environment around us or even humanity as a whole. We are talking about the world system we live in. I mean, think about the underlying beliefs, the common held viewpoints about life, about humanity, about God in those in our culture. What is the point of life to most in our culture? To live for their own happiness and get glory for themselves instead of glorify the almighty God. How do most people in our culture view God? We know a growing number are rejecting faith altogether, right? But for the vast majority of those in our culture who still have faith, many of them treat God like he is their cosmic Santa Claus or cosmic genie as if God's purposes, his ultimate ends are to make us happy. So in essence, what has happened is the role has been reversed. Instead of worshiping God, man thinks God should worship him. The creation wants the creator to worship him, them. How do most people view themselves? 99.9% of them would say they're good, right? They try to do everything right they can. On occasion, they might say a white lie or say a bad word, but overall, they're doing just fine without God, right? So my question is, why does our society have such an unbiblical worldview? Why does the culture seem to have opinions that are so anti-Christian? Well, Matthew 15, 11 and then jumping down to verses 18 through 20, gives us some clarity, gives us some insight on why the world is so against Christ, why it's so anti-Christian. And this is Jesus speaking. And he says this in Matthew 15, 11. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Verse 18 But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So Jesus says that wrong thinking and wrong actions are a byproduct of our hearts The problem is not outside of us, church. It's what's inside, Jesus says. 
We can see the heart of sin from infancy in children. Sinning is as natural as breathing for them. No one has to teach toddlers how to fight for what they want. No one has to teach them how to tell lies when it's convenient. No one has to teach babies how to throw tantrums when they want their way. Jesus says it comes natural because it comes from their little hearts. We realize that little angels may not have been the most appropriate way to describe children. Body Bauckham described babies as vipers in diapers. I won't say anything else about that. But they are little sinners who grow up to be really big sinners. This leads to point number two. The world is anti-Christian because people are born anti-Christian. The world is anti-Christian because people are born anti-Christian. That's what scripture teaches. David said in Psalm 51.5 that he was sinful from birth. Romans 3.10-18 gives us a general perspective of how the community of the world looks. Romans 3, 10 through 18 says this, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Venom of asps on under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It doesn't sound like people are naturally very good, right? That's what we conclude by passages like this. So let's be clear, rebellion against God, evil or sinful ways, aren't something we usually catch from others. It's part of who we are. It's in our DNA from the beginning before God saved us. That's why what is wrong is right. And what is right is now considered wrong, right? Yeah, that's right. I wonder if we understand how dark this world really is. I wonder if we recognize how our own hearts are often filled with such darkness. We don't have to watch something bad to sin. We just have to listen to our own hearts, the scriptures say. But we have to remember, this is the point of the gospel. Christ came into the world to save the worst, right? To save sinners like you and me. That's the point. This is why the gospel is good news. We were desperately wicked, living against God, and he came into the world and saved us when we were at our worst, when we were nothing. Let's go back to John 16, 20, where Jesus says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. 
you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So Jesus tells the disciples, you will be weeping as the world rejoices, but soon, soon, your weeping, your sorrow will turn into joy, he says. You might be thinking, how can this be? I mean, how can the disciples who will be so upset over the death of Christ all of a sudden become joyful? And of course, the answer is what? The resurrection, right? The resurrection of Christ. Let's fast forward to John 20. So we can see how the disciples were filled with joy after the resurrection. John 20, verses 19 through 20. And I think we have these on the screens. Yes. Thank you, guys. And this is after the resurrection and Jesus. And this is what it says. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So we see here that the disciples were upset, right? Because Christ was crucified, and in fear that the Jews were going to capture them, they were in hiding, it says. And it says in that moment, Jesus appears... Before them, which would have been a real shock, right? Because he was just killed three days ago and put in a tomb. And then verse 20 in the ESV says that the disciples were glad when they saw him. But the problem is glad really doesn't give us the true description of how the disciples were feeling at that moment. Because this word for glad could also be translated as rejoiced or overjoyed. So a better rendering of this passage would be that. That the disciples were overjoyed. They rejoiced when they saw Christ. Not just glad. They were rejoicing. Now let's turn back to where we were. At John 16, the second half again of verse 20, where Jesus again prophesies about the very moment we just read about when he rises from the grave and says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Notice, Jesus doesn't say their sorrow will be compensated by joy, nor does he say that their, joy, their sorrow will be replaced with joy. He says their sorrow will turn into joy. And you may be thinking, okay, Terry, I really don't know what you're trying to get at. I don't know why that's so important. I don't know why that's so significant. Well, Jesus gives a great illustration to help us understand why this is so significant when he says their sorrow will turn into joy. Let's look at verse 21. Verse 21, Jesus says this. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So Jesus says a woman is in labor, and I'm going to add a little bit of my own color to this, but Jesus says a woman is in labor, she's going through severe pain, right? I mean, the pain is so great that she forgets there are strangers in the room. 
She forgets about maybe struggling with people-pleasing. She forgets. She, she doesn't worry about what people think about her. She's not worried about anything. She's not worried about what she looks like. She's not saying, oh, there's some hair out of place. She's not doing any of that. Because the pain overtakes her. The niceties are thrown out the window. As she's trying to just get through the severe and intense pain of labor. Now let me all assure you, I have never had this experience. But I have had the opportunity of supporting my wife when she has went through this a few times. But there is a point when it is finished. And let me tell you, I say hallelujah, it is finished at that point. The body relaxes, the intensity subsides, and the mom hears the little cries and coos of her newborn as her heart leaps for joy. I know every one of the moms know what I'm talking about, right? She stares in wonder and amazement at her new little blessing from above. The pain, the suffering, the agony is all worth it, amen? She had to go through the pain to get to her baby. Her pain turns into joy. And similarly, the resurrection does not do away with the crucifixion. It does not do away with the pain and suffering, but it reveals that the sorrow of the crucifixion led to the joy of the resurrection. Amen? And this leads to point number three. Sorrow of the cross was transformed into the joy of the resurrection. Let me say that again. The sorrow of the cross was transformed into the joy of of the resurrection. But this doesn't just apply to the disciples, but all of us who are in Christ. Without the sorrow of the cross, we don't have the joy of the resurrection either. I mean, think about it. What is Christianity without the resurrection? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 17-19, Paul tells us, he says this, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of people most to be pitied. Paul says without the resurrection, our faith is futile, which literally means worthless. It's worth nothing. We are still guilty in our sins, and Christianity is chalked up as another false religion. But, but, we can rest assured that our sorrow has turned into joy because Christ has risen from the dead. Amen? Because of the resurrection, we have a new identity. We are now called children of God. Those who have placed their trust in Christ, who have turned from self and submitted to Christ Jesus, we are now forgiven of past, present, and future sins, and we can confidently say that we are children of the King. That's something to be excited about. 
Because of the resurrection, we have been given the Holy Spirit who has come into our hearts and is transforming us into the likeness of Christ. Because of the resurrection, we can turn away from sin, the bondage of sin, and we can now live to please the Lord. Because of the resurrection, we have full access into the Father's throne. We can go to him and pray anytime, and he's ready to hear us. Because of the resurrection, we now inherit all the riches of Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1 tells us. Because of the resurrection, we will one day be raised from the dead and live with Christ for all eternity. Because of the resurrection... I wonder if we have the joy of the resurrection this morning. I wonder if we can relate with the disciples who rejoiced when they knew Christ rose from the grave, right? I mean, they thought they lost everything when Christ was crucified. And when he rose from the grave, they were full of joy and awe. The question is why? What caused them to be so deeply affected by Christ? And the answer is Christ was their life. Christ was their life. They invested everything they had in Christ. I wonder this morning if Christ is our life. How would our life be affected How would our life be different if Christ wasn't a part of it? What would be different? Would there be a huge void, a vast emptiness in our life without Christ? Or would we continue to live the same life we're living now? Business as usual. How we answer this question reveals if we are truly submitted to Christ or if he's just another add-on to our already wonderful life. Well, let's continue on as we are now in John 16, 20, where Jesus says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away. Or... I'll read the verse over since I sort of added my own words to it. No one will take your joy from you. So Jesus tells them, I know you're sad now. And then reminds them that they will rejoice when he sees them again, when he rises from the dead. But then he says something stunning, something that should get our attention. He says, this joy no one will take from you. The question is, what is this joy? Because most of us know worldly happiness quite well. Happiness occurs when life goes our way. Happiness occurs when life runs smoothly. Happiness occurs when our children sleep all night, right? Happiness occurs when Casey says, Terry, you know, you are right. Or happiness occurs... Happiness occurs when Luke sings a great worship song. Happiness occurs when my wife tells me that I am the greatest husband that she has ever been married to. 
But anyway, regardless, happiness is based on good circumstances that led to good feelings. But in our passage, Jesus says that our hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. No one will take that joy from you. Regardless, happiness is based on good circumstances that lead to good feelings. But in our passage, Jesus says that this joy won't be taken from us. That means joy is beyond good circumstances. Joy isn't about life going our way. Joy isn't based on how I am feeling the next day because of what I ate the night before. Joy is present. When we are going through hard times, joy is there when we are suffering. Joy is present in our life when our world is turned upside down. Joy is present in the midst of crisis because it's supernatural. Joy comes to those who trust in Christ. Joy comes to those who love Christ. As Jesus says, no one, no one will take your joy from you. This is a joy begins to those who are in Christ. And this joy was birthed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason why is because the resurrection was not just an amazing one-time event, but it was proof that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God. But the resurrection also ushered in a new era. As Christ said, that he would fulfill all the law in the Old Testament, right? Which part of that meant that the people of God would no longer have to sacrifice at the temple to cover over their sins. As Christ would become that acceptable sacrifice to the Father that would pay for our sins forever. And now through the death and resurrection, God's people are cleansed by his blood. God no longer dwells in the temple built with hands, but lives in his people. Because people are now, his people are now purified by Christ's blood. And now the Holy Spirit dwells in us. God lives in us, amen? But you might still be thinking... But why can't this joy be taken away still? How is it possible that this joy stays inside those who have it? Well, this leads to point number four. Joy is the work of the Spirit. Joy is the work of the Spirit. Those of us who are children of God, who repented of our sin and trusted in Christ, are now God's children. And we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. That means as long as we have the Holy Spirit, we will continue to grow in joy. And we know that if we are believers, we are secure in Christ. He is the one that keeps us saved. We don't keep ourselves saved. So we don't have to worry about losing the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13. It'll be on the screens behind you, but it says this. May the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask us, who fills us with joy and peace from our verse? God, right? Who gives us faith? God. By our verse, who overflows us with more hope? God the Holy Spirit, it says, if we're reading it from this passage. 
So we can't create our own joy. We can't make ourselves more joyful today than we were yesterday. It is a work of the Spirit. It is a work of, a God, of God, not a work of man. That's what the verses tell us. Romans 15, 13 says that we grow in joy as we trust in him. Trusting in Christ means we live for Christ. Trusting in Christ means we are growing in joy. I wonder this morning if you're trusting in Christ. Do you know this joy Christ promises us? Psalm 28.7 says this, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him. And he helps me. My heart leaps for joy. And with my song, I praise him. The psalmist says in the second part that he leaps for joy in his heart. And he worships the Lord even in the midst of his struggles that he's facing. I wonder if we are like the psalmist, if we have our foundation on Christ. So that even in the midst of our crisis, the storms of life, we are still joyful. Joy isn't found in circumstances. Or joy isn't found even in our relationships. Joy isn't found in my marriage. It's not found in raising my children. It's not found in my, in my friendships. Our joy must be rooted deeply and established firmly in Christ and in Christ alone. What a challenge and a comfort. For all of us, as we are prone to settle for worldly happiness and gravitating towards finding our own way of fulfillment, right? Instead of depending on Christ for our joy. And yet, I must say that God is so merciful and loving towards us that he convicts our hearts of sin when we chase after happiness instead of seeking after God. Draws us back to him. One way or another. He used so many different avenues. He allows us to rub shoulders with a, another believer who encourages us. Or he takes us to a passage in scripture that gives us exactly what we needed to hear. Or he answers our prayer, right? And it rekindles our joy and faith again. Or he uses words from the pulpit to convict us and bring us back into the joy of the Lord. We are in Christ, we are secure this morning, amen. If we are in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. And if we have the Holy Spirit, you can guarantee that you're growing in joy. Well, Jesus concludes this section in John 16, 33 by saying this. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So, the question is, why did Jesus tell the disciples these things? Why did he tell them about the death, his death and resurrection? Maybe Christ wanted to give these guys a pep talk because they weren't doing so good. Or maybe they needed to be more faithful to God and Christ was sort of disciplining them. Well, let's read our passage again. It tells us. John 16, the first part says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. 
peace. Jesus says, I am telling you all of this so that you may in me have peace. Jesus says, I'm telling you this before I go because I care for you. I love you. Jesus is doing what is best for the disciples. I mean, think about it. Time is short. In a few days, Jesus will be brutally killed. And who is on his mind? Who is he thinking about? Who is he loving? He spends his last moments pouring himself out, serving, encouraging his beloved, his disciples, his friends. Which leads to point number five. Our final point. Christ is working for our good. Christ is working for our good. Jesus ends this section by saying, the second part of verse 33, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We have to remember that Christ said these words knowing what was in the hearts of the disciples. He saw the fears. He saw the worries. He saw their struggles, right? He saw their insecurities. And let me remind us that he sees our hearts as well. He knows what we are struggling with. He knows our fears. He knows our worries. He knows our sadness. He knows our pain. He knows our wounds from our past. He knows our sinful ways. He knows us, church, better than we know ourselves. And he says, take heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. I wonder as we sit here this morning if we recognize how much Christ has been working for our good. James says every, this is every, good and perfect gift comes from above, comes from our Father in heaven. Every perfect, every gift we have. And part of recognizing how Christ is working for our good is to see how much we have right now, to see how blessed we are in this moment, to see the gifts that God is showering us with, even in the midst of the struggles that we're facing. I know God reminded me of this a few days ago. The boys, we have a, the boys have a triple bunk bed, a triple bunk bed. It's not dangerous, but it's a triple bunk bed. Where Joby, our two-year-old, is on the bottom, Silas, our four-year-old, is in the middle, and then Luke, our oldest six-year-old, is on top. And I was tucking them into bed, like usual, going through the routine, going through the motions, trying to get it done, almost like it was a chore. And I realized I won't have this very long. This is like moments in time. And I was overwhelmed at that moment with thankfulness, with joy, with gratitude from God, recognizing how much I have just in having the opportunity to raise these precious boys. These bright-eyed, energetic, 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 full-of-life boys that God has lent me for a time. And it showed me 
that so often God is blessing us. He is pouring gifts on us all around us through people, through friends, through the church, even in times of troubles. And we are missing them. We aren't giving praise to God that he deserves all glory. We aren't thinking. We aren't thanking him for the blessings because we're too busy. I have too many things to get done. I have my own agendas. I can't be praising God, right? Or we might be going through trials and we start taking God's blessings for granted. And we start focusing in all our attention on the problems and the troubles at hand. Instead of praising him for his continued work in our life, recognizing even in our troubles, he is using those to change us. Amen? I wonder if we can relate. If Sometimes you're letting life get the best of you. And maybe that you're too busy. And maybe that you're really struggling with fear or worry. And you're missing the fact that Christ is working for your good. He's working for my good. I struggle this with this as well, by the way. He's giving gifts all the time that we often don't see in our lives. What about joy versus happiness? Are we joyful because of our relationship with Christ this morning? Or are we chasing after shallow happiness? The iPhone 7 has come out, right? That's more, that's what we really love. No, Christ. May we be a church that has the joy of the Lord. May we be a people who are growing in joy because of the Holy Spirit living inside us. May we be a church that is walking in love and showing grace to the world that does not know grace. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we're in awe of what you do, that you turn our sorrow into joy. Often we get caught up in the world we get caught up in all the wrong things, and we lose our focus on you, Father. Forgive us for that. Forgive us of the many sins that we commit just on a daily basis of not thanking you and praising you for all the things that you are doing in our lives, Father. Help us to seek you. And it says a natural byproduct will be joy. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. May we be faithful Servants of the High King. In Him we pray. Amen.